So today's episode is not a religious episode, although Beckett is a Catholic, and I don't normally make announcements at the beginning of episodes, but I've got a pretty big one this week about a new podcast I'm hosting called Reconstruct, which is about the deconstruction and subsequent reconstruction of Christian faith. I'm co-hosting this show with John Rains, a friend and former bandmate of mine who's a student at Fuller Seminary right now getting his master's in theology. And May 1st, one week from today, episode one of Reconstruct will officially launch onto podcast apps, stores, and on our website, followed on May 2nd by episode two. So two episodes back-to-back, day one and day two. Now, is this a show for you? Well, do you find yourself asking questions like these? Is the Bible actually trustworthy? Does it contain errors? Did Yahweh really command genocide in the Old Testament? How could a good God allow the Holocaust or send billions of people to hell? If I were born in Iran instead of a Western country, wouldn't I just be a Muslim and not a Christian? Is it possible in America to have a Christian faith that isn't tied to the Republican Party or to conservative politics? Does God have a special relationship with poor or marginalized people? Should women be allowed to be ordained? Can evolution and the Bible both be true? I could list 10 more or 100 more questions, but those are the types of things we'll be addressing on the show. Most of the time, we will have an expert guest with us that we're interviewing, and occasionally it'll just be the two of us. Upcoming guests for season one include Peter Enns, Science Mike McHarg, Drew Hart, Greg Boyd, and a bunch more. The last thing I should note about the show is that John and I do not agree theologically, often, and this is a big part of what we hope to bring to the table. The ability to discuss deep and challenging questions, to remain civil and friendly, to stay friends in the end, and to provide listeners with at least two distinct theological options. In this sense, at least, I think the show will have a lot in common with Depolarize, but focus more on faith and theology. If all of this sounds good to you, then check out Reconstruct on May 1st. In the meantime, we have some essays up at reconstructpodcast.com. Both John and I have written some pieces, so you can go read those and get a flavor for kind of what we're doing. Now, on to Beckett Adams, our guest for today. Beckett is originally from Indiana, and he's a staff writer at the Washington Examiner in D.C. He mostly writes about the media and politics, which I thought would make him a great guest for us. And I've been trying to get more conservative-leaning guests on the show, which has been a little bit difficult just because of my own circle of friends and acquaintances, but I was really happy that Beckett agreed to do the show. I wish I had had more time to chat with him. He only had like less than an hour because he does work in a newsroom in Washington, D.C., but I wish I had more time because he has a great perspective and I really enjoyed talking with him. Hope you do too. So Beckett, how did you briefly end up covering politics? Why do you care? Uh, I was actually in D.C. I was going to school at the Catholic University of America, and um, the story is actually pretty simple. I needed work, and I needed money, and there was this place called the National Journalism Center, and they were one of the few internships in uh, the nation's capital that actually paid. So I applied. Applied total shot in the dark. I, I could, you know, read and write. Obviously, I'd already gone to college, and so they asked, you know, if I was interested, and I just thought I'd give it a shot, and I turned out being not so bad at it. And 
one thing kind of escalated after that. I got it. No, I graduated from Catholic University, and next thing I know, uh, the Blaze was looking for a business editor. Which, by the way, um, after gra- I went to Catholic University for a degree in business, so I had the degree in business, then coupled with National Journalism Center, and I fell into journalism, and somehow along the way, got into politics. Sweet. So you mentioned the Blaze, and you write for Washington Examiner. Um, and the Examiner is sort of known as like center right, sort of like the Wall Street Journal is known. I'd like to ask you as a contributor to to, and then the Blaze I think is maybe even further right. Is that safe to say? I would say. Well, I left there about three years ago, and in its editorial direction, I, I'm actually not as up to date. I think it's gone further right, but I uh, yeah. honestly haven't really kept up. But okay, so a journalist working in basically broadly speaking conservative media. What do you – how do you define conservative and do you consider yourself a political conservative? I consider myself a political conservative. I do not consider myself a Republican, okay. if that makes sense. So what's the difference? Well, obviously we know the difference, but so what is – what defines conservatism? Well, for me at least, it's mostly the social issues. I'm a Roman Catholic, which should have been a giveaway with me going to Catholic yeah. University. Well, yeah, not um, always, but yeah. So a lot of the social issues are very important to me, most especially the issue of abortion. Um, I feel the Republican Party, not in my lifetime, has really put up quite the fight that I would have liked to see. Uh, likewise, another one, I have been enamored for years since I was young with um, characters like William F. Buckley and Milton Friedman, who not just talk about social issues, but they are very into sort of fiscal conservatism, which has not been a thing within my lifetime. I like to joke, my brother and I like to joke that George W. Bush is our favorite Democrat, and he spent like a Democrat. Yeah. Um, I, ha- I haven't been alive for real fiscal conservatism. So you know, growing up and watching things like Free to Choose or reading God and Man at Yale, that kind of formed my my thinking. I mean, obviously, uh, personal experience and, and how I live my life and based on the personal code I live. But Republicanism and this sort of idea, tribalism, where I know I, I'm red because there's an R next to my name and I go along with whatever with whatever spending bill we put through, whatever you know legislation we're going to go along with, whatever unauthorized airstrike we're going to conduct on what Middle Eastern country, I, it's not my bag. I've never really been for that. Yeah. So would you say, though, that you still think it is worth operating within the Republican Party and being a voice that tries to moderate it or move it toward the direction that you'd like it to go, or do you prefer to operate outside of the party system? Well, if you had asked me this before 2015, I would have said, oh, yeah, operate within the system. I mean, we have gotten away um, so far out with lighting. I, I, I think Reagan was a fine president from what I've read. I wasn't old enough to actually have paid attention. But I think we have lied where he's this kind of like gruff speaking John Wayne cowboy character, which is not what he was. He was actually a deal maker. He did. There was a lot of compromise between him and Tip O'Neill. Uh, but this sort of idea that you no know, Reagan just did it and he fought. Well, no, Reagan also understood what compromise would be required to get the best possible deal you can get for your agenda. I don't think there's a lot of that going on now. A lot of the times with the current setup of the Republican Party is that uh, it, it feels a lot of times like capitulation. But at the same time, the grassroots, and I, I don't want to get too much into too much trouble with this, but I think the grassroots a lot of times has set up very unrealistic goals for leadership and when leadership can't follow through. There's almost like it's been a cottage industry to just constantly attack the Republican Party. We talk about the 
the monolithic so-called establishment. And at some point, like a point I actually do like to make a lot of people in the grassroots, by and large, really don't care for Mitch McConnell. One thing, though, if you if you ask a lot of them, and it's not not to make fun of anyone, but it's like some of these discussions I've had, ask them, are you aware during the first four or five years of Obama's presidency of the number of uh, judicial nominees that Senator McConnell got through? And they have no idea what you're talking about. Senator McConnell actually did a lot of work behind the back getting judges appointed to different courts. That actually works a lot towards at least the, the Republican slash conservative agenda. A lot of people don't know. Like, it's just kind of popular to complain about rhinos and squishes and stuff. Now, if I could go back for a second, if you had asked me this in 2015, I would say, yes, the GOP is not conservative in the way I would like to see it to be conservative. But it is, you know, it, it's the hand you've been dealt and you deal with it as best you could. Unfortunately, I would say 2015 and 2016, for me at least, um, revealed the GOP to be a little more craven and opportunistic than even I had suspected, watching people who had previously staked out very strong positions completely cave and then turn to go support Trump. That to me was disheartening. And so to your question, if I could get to the conclusion of it is, I feel now I operate more outside of the GOP because I don't trust a lot of the GOP. I don't trust a man who breaks his word because he sees victory on the horizon. Winning is nice, but it doesn't matter if you're winning without your principles. What's the difference? Especially when you hear people be like, well, their rules, well, the left did this, well, Obama did this. And you're like, yes, they did. I didn't like that. I don't want that for me. If you do that, now we all are awful. Great. So now I don't have – in the last eight or ten years of my being in politics or reporting in politics, I have been pushed so – like both sides, Democrats and Republicans are basically like bouncing me back and forth and throwing me to the libertarians. That's pretty <laughs> much where I, where I find myself. That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I'm, I describe myself as center left. And so the discussion I'm having with many of my friends and with people online these days is – the exact argument you just made, well, you know, we've been obstructionist because Harry Reid was obstructionist before and when he when he had control democratic control. And the argument now is, well, you know, look how much McConnell and the Republicans have sort of abused the norms of governance. So we're going to block Gorsuch and force them to use a nuclear option. We're going to be obstructionist because tit for tat, basically. Um, they're willing to play dirty. If we're not willing to play dirty, we won't win. And, you know, I don't know what the long-term effects will be of that, but my intuition is don't do that. Like, if, if you think it was morally wrong or uh, unhelpful to democracy in general for the Republicans to have behaved a certain way, do not then go and behave the same way yourself. And you can draw distinctions and say, well, it's not totally the same. It's not quite as bad or whatever. Right. But it does feel like we're kind of we're justifying at that point. And that does not mean that it's not the most politically expedient thing to do. I don't know. Uh, but that it's funny to hear you articulate the exact same kind of argument toward your own side on the right that I have, that I'm at least sort of leaning toward on the left toward, toward sort of my own half of the spectrum. Right. And, and, and to that, like my issue is I, I actually, I have plenty of friends who are Democrats and some who are even hard progressives. And at the, we have these great, fantastic arguments. The thing for me is like, if you have principles, just stick to it. One of the most craven examples I can think of, of just watching how easily people just flipped for Trump, which is bizarre because Trump is not a conservative. I don't, is uh, the best example I can think of is Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh in 20, I want to say 2010, supported Christine O'Donnell in, uh, damn it, it was Connecticut or Delaware. I'm drawing a blank on this. Connecticut. 
He supported her over the so-called establishment candidate under the argument, you always support the most conservative candidate no matter what. The polling, all the polling at that time showed Christine O'Donnell was going to lose and she was going to lose miserably. And lo and behold, she lost miserably. Limbaugh and a lot of other talk radio guys stuck with him and said, well, you know what? She lost, but you know what? At least it wasn't, uh, I want to say, Mike Castle. At least it wasn't Mike Castle, that rhino squish. Fast forward to 2016. By the way, uh, I, don't, I don't listen to any conservative talk radio. What is a rhino and what's a squish? Or is that the same thing? Uh, you are, and you're better off for it. I actually stopped listening in high school. I listen now because I have to for my job. A rhino is an acronym for Republican in name only, okay. which is yeah, I've heard funny because Donald Trump is it's literally Republican in name only. And a squish is just a just common term. He's a squishy center. He, he's not rock solid, no rock ribbed conservatism. OK, so basically, especially it really it's a derogatory term for any kind of a moderate or centrist. Right. Centrist and moderate is a that's a dirty word in the grassroots circles. Yeah. So it's well, amazing on the left that you as had, well it is, too. Right. Right. So what's amazing is you had people like Limbaugh and similar, you know, Fox News and Fox News commentary. There's, of course, a difference between the news side and commentary. But you had people of that cut saying it is better Senate seat and stick to our principles than support this guy who we think is going to be squishy, who's a, but he's a Republican. Now, fast forward to 2016, and you have Trump sharing a stage with guys like Rand Paul and guys like Marco Rubio, and these same people who said it's okay, it's better to lose the Senate seat than turn to a rhino. I'll go, you know what? Actually, I think Trump is the best one up there, and I still have no idea what the hell is going on. Like, how how do you go from it's better to lose the Senate seat to looking at Rubio and Rick Perry and and Rand Paul and going, actually, Donald Trump is the conservative for me? I mean, it, it does seem pretty clear that it is just about winning. Now, winning is not necessarily the same as, like, winning for your own football team. I mean, it could be... That winning allows you to get through a legislative agenda that you think will benefit millions of people. Uh, we could definitely question <laughs> the efficacy of that plan thus far. Um, but, you know, even if you think winning is good in terms of winning will move forward real goods for your constituents, the question does have to be asked at what cost? At what cost to your principles are you willing to win? And are, do you even have the clout to put forward an agenda if anybody paying attention can see that you've just completely gone against everything you said? I mean, how many people, how many elected officials denounced Trump and unendorsed him after the Access Hollywood tapes leaked and then eventually went back? I mean, it's a, right, exactly. it's a big number. Like you get to see uh, Congressman Jason Chaffetz be like, I can't support him. How can I look my daughter in the eye? And then he goes and endorses him like three weeks later. You're like, oh, can you look your daughter in the eye now? Like. How, yeah, actually, guys... no, she, she, his daughter got glasses. And so now when he looks her in the eye, it just reflects off of the glasses. And so it's much easier for him emotionally. But, but, but no, you make a good point. Like, I think a lot of the problem with a lot of the grassroots and a lot of the sort of like evolving, like the, the evolution in the Republican Party. And the, that's the reason I make the distinction between conservatism and the Republican Party is because conservatism is always going to be conservatism. There's, it's, it's a mindset. It's an ethos. Whatever the Republican Party is today, I don't know what the hell it is. But it goes to your question about like, yeah, you win. So you got a guy in the White House. So what? What about your principles? You guys threw half that stuff out the window to get there. Now you turn around. You got nothing left. Like – 
a lot of what animates a lot of the GOP base today is just the idea of getting even. It's our turn. We're going to stick it to them. They called us names or they don't take us seriously. Well, now we got the White House. Now who's now who's laughing? I'm like, okay, you got the White House, but are you going to get infrastructure done? Are you going to get tax reform done? Are you going to get entitlement? You're not going to get entitlement reform done with Donald Trump. Are you kidding me? And so all this stuff that they You just say that per- because he is like – politically incompetent or why do you think they're not going to get the stuff done that they want because he doesn't care well no he he's opposed to it he's right. he's pro medicare and he's pro social security i mean he's not touching those entitlements he's when not you even, say he's entitlement not, reform you mean like paul ryan style reform where you basically remove half of them paul uh his way forward or whatever he's calling it nowadays I'm not, not yeah, no, I wouldn't tie the idea of entitlement reform strictly to Paul Ryan. I, I guess his, I just his, mean like a, a traditional conservative approach to entitlement reform where you basically are making fewer of them to save budgetary space. The idea mostly is to audit for waste. I mean, that's one big problem that we have with a lot of federal bureaucracy right now is yeah. that there's this fear of actually auditing anything for waste. And so the idea of like there's a lot, there is a lot of social security waste and there is a lot of uh, abuse use within that system but you even whisper the word and you have every lobbyist group and basically all the senators and all congressmen and women uh saying no 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 we're not going anywhere near this like social security is never going to be reformed in any meaningful way that saves money and also produces the benefits for the people who deserve them so better to just audit it and, and make it as as lean and efficient as possible basically right that's the idea like i don't I don't support the idea of like you're old, get your own money. That's that's not where I believe in it. <laughs> I am all for this, you know, so the uh, social security net, all for taking care of our citizens. That's fine, but the idea for me, at least, is the idea of a lot of this stuff just needs to be. I think lean is a good way of putting it. Like, let's just make sure things are being as well run as they could. That's why you hear so many conservatives talk about the you know bringing the private sector into the public sector because stuff like I mean, you may people may not like certain companies, but Apple is very well run. There is no waste, and they make a product that people like that works well every time. And that's the idea. People are like, can we marry that sort of mentality to the public sector to make sure we're not ballooning our deficits? And that's the idea. It's not just to cut away uh, Social Security. But to this rambling point I'm trying to make is you have – the GOP has been talking about this for uh, decades now. And then they all just rallied behind one guy saying, actually, I, I don't want to reform any of these things. And they're like, well, that's fine. We'll do it. We just want that White House. I'm like, well, do you guys actually want to get anything done or do you just want to be able to say, nah, yeah, we got our own guy in the White House? Yeah, it's, that's, that's tough. Well, I didn't ask you to be on the show for you to criticize the right. I actually, I was hoping to get your <laughs> a view from the right criticizing the left. Um, we've spent a good 15 minutes now. Uh, sort of explaining why you are frustrated with your own party or what what was your party or however you want to say that. But let's let's shift our focus a little bit here because my circle of friends and acquaintances tends to be more liberal and m- many of my guests lean that way. And so I, I want to like milk the fact that I have a nice informed conservative guest here. Let's talk about media bias. So uh, we started the program. I said, The Washington Examiner is known for being kind of center right, like the Wall Street Journal. You said, yes, it is. And we could talk about other news sources as being sort of center left. We might talk about the New York Times or NPR, or some people say CNN. Some people play CNN in the middle. What do people even mean when they like, how is that quantified? Like, what does it mean for a news source to lean left or right? Can you just 
give us your explanation of that. <laughs> uh, this is funny. I, I mean, I'm not sure what the expectations were for having me on. Most, I, I'm basically like, I'm not a Republican, not really even a conservative. I'm a Roman Catholic who leans libertarian. So the question to answer that is, well, I just I, think, I say oh, that because you write a lot of articles for the Examiner oh, that, no, no, that no, critiques no, 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 media. Yeah, this is the wind yeah. up to my answer is that I don't actually have a lot of criticism. Like I don't believe that CNN is liberal or that the New York Times is liberal. I believe they are big, old organizations that happen to attract a lot of people who have a particular political leaning. Uh, one thing I think a lot of newsrooms would do would to maybe diversify their hires, but it happens to be that – I mean it's become such an easy crutch for a lot of people on the right to just scream about media bias and to make up these conspiracies of smoke-filled rooms where I guess editors get together and like, we're going to make up a story today. That's not how it works. What we've been seeing a lot of it – I mean there's some – the age of digital media and online media has changed everything and a lot have struggled to adjust. Some are getting better at it, but the ability to report something instantaneously on, say, Twitter, to be able to say right away makes it also so much easier to get stories wrong. That's not an issue of bias. That's an issue of mistakes. That's an issue of adjusting to the modern era. And that's also an issue of sloppiness, maybe laziness, but this sort of overarching conspiracy that you know CBS is out to get you. I don't believe that's true, and I think one of the biggest problems for a lot of newsrooms is that they have failed to sort of reach out to audiences and be like, actually, this is this is how this was done or why this was done. This is why we made this decision. This is why we did that. Yeah, Instead, there could be a bit more this, transparency. Yeah, right. Instead, there's this silence, and then people start to assume the worst because after a while, they you know the mistakes pile up, and then people start drawing trend lines. Like, is this on purpose or? Is there a good reason for this? Uh, uh, a simply poorly worded Chiron on CNN, you know, the on-air, uh, for your listeners, whoever, Chiron is just basically the on-air headline you see on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. That stuff is usually typed up at the moment, right away, on the spot, by some like 20, 21-year-old intern. There's no grand conspiracy. Sometimes they mess up. Sometimes like the headline looks like bias, but most of the time it's just a kid who's trying on the fly to think of something concise that fits on the screen. But yeah. see, CNN doesn't make that effort to go out and be like, hey, that's not actually bias. It was just, you know, dot, dot, dot. And so then you have these grand conspiracies about, you know, these, you know, Jeff, you know, uh, Jeff Zucker met with, you know, uh, Barack Obama and together they plan to bring down Donald Trump. That's all nonsense. Now, what I have written a lot about post-Trump is that there – I do believe there is a lot of scolding in uh, – that is in order for media because so many people I think want so badly to be the you know, the Woodward Bernstein, to, to have that story that shines a light and really does in this you – know, like that brings down Donald Trump that – yeah people are, are tripping over themselves with bad information and well stories let's talk that about that rachel maddow thing where she did this whole oh, like six hour wind up to having this tax return and then in you know people are watching the show and she's doing her thing and her thing happens to be this like i mean honestly i'm, I'm sure a lot of my listeners like her uh but sometimes and, and i often find her to be pretty condescending and she takes a really long time to get to her point. And especially when she sort of like built this thing up, then it was this dud. And then it comes out, it has cl- a client copy stamp on it, which would make one reasonably assume the Trump administration actually leaked it because somebody, because Trump right. is the client, right? It's someone right. like it's, it's from the client had it. And so it's possible that someone else received a copy of a client copy and then leaked that. But it just felt like exactly what you're saying. Like she was 
uh, her and her editors and, and MSNBC, whomever, they were salivating at the chance to like really take a brick out of the Trump wall. And right. really, it seems to have backfired in basically every way. Right. And actually with her, she I think she's in she deserves even more scolding because they knew going into that what they had. They oversold it for the ratings. That's let's be honest about what that was. That's not the same thing as somebody getting a bad tip and reporting it or somebody maybe kind of hyping a headline like they knew what they were doing. We have Trump. We have Trump's tax returns. You see that on Twitter. and You go, holy, holy Moses. Wow, really? Yeah, I then better you watch. Tune in, yeah. You tune in and she gives you this 15 minute monologue on the nature of politics and lying. And you're like, OK, can you please get to it? Then she gets to it and you're like, wait, this is it? Oh, come on. I mean, yeah. But there has been a lot like um, their Washington Post had one story that was, I mean, is just flat out wrong. It said the entire senior level State Department resigned in mass in protest of Trump. Simply didn't happen. Three mid-tier guys who were set to retire uh, were asked to leave, as is, which is actually pretty common for most, um, what do you call it, transition periods for a new administration. Yeah. That was it. But they, that story, I mean, there's this sort of like Trump is not normal. Trump is a totally different animal that nobody, I think, was it was ready for and newsrooms had not prepared for. Everyone and their mother thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Donald Trump wins and now people are like, we don't know what to expect. He is so different. He's so – he can't stop talking. I mean do you know how long and how much work it took for reporters to figure out that Barack Obama ate seven almonds every night? Like you had to pry that information out. Right now it's like a – like – Trump is basically the BP oil spill, and we can't make it stop. Like we keep trying <laughs> to plug it up, and it just, yeah. <laughs> it just keeps gushing. And so I don't. I think there's been this really painful adjusting period trying to figure out how do we cover a president like this. And unfortunately, in that in that time period, there has been a lot of, for lack of better word, crappy reporting, which it, which is the exact opposite of what we need right now if we actually want to hold the powerful accountable. Yeah. So, and I, I want to get to that accountability, but one more question on the bias. So let me just sort of explain to you where I'm coming from. I'll read a story. So I have a subscription to the New York Times and The Economist. Economist is out of England, leans right. New York Times, you know, these days leans left. I read the same thing. There are differences. Specifically, like if I had to sort of characterize usually what the differences are, it's in the analysis or in the in like the information around the information that is chosen and the way that that's phrased. You know, so the economist uh, will kind of frame things more with the perspective of like globalism is good, kind of that classical liberalism turned to globalism, free trade is good. And but they're pretty like they're they're pretty slow to, to get hysterical about anything. And then if I read the Times, it's like I can usually tell there are a handful of sentences in this article that don't necessarily need to be in there. But that if I am a good coastal liberal will make me feel like this was written by a member of my tribe. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they're not lying. Generally, none of the facts are false. It's just it's 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 barely perceptible. But I do perceive it when I read multiple sources on the same story. So if whatever that is, if it's not people in a smoke filled room, is it just the fact that like the people who buy the newspaper tend to be liberal. And if they don't write it that way, they'll stop buying it. Like what is actually happening? I don't think it's so much that as it's a cultural thing, different in different cultures. For instance, the, the tech industry in Silicon Valley is extremely, uh, is leans hard left. If not hard left, it's libertarian. And that's about it. There's no real sort of Republican conservative strain. I mean, you have some of these one-offs like Peter Thiel, but likewise in media, it just, it's a, 
it's an industry culture that attracts people who are either center or center left or sometimes even hard left. But you are right. There are there is an editorial tone to certain newsrooms. Fox has its own tone. Uh, CNN has its own tone. The Washington Post, uh, New York Times. But there's a difference between having a tone, which is a, a commonly shared tone within an industry versus an actual conspiracy to go out and ruin someone, yeah. which is what a lot of people think is happening. I don't think there's a conspiracy at the Post or the New York Times to ruin, say, Paul Ryan. There is a tone which is not fond of Paul Ryan, but you will also see that you know, on the Republican or the conservative being talked about. You can see that the Wall Street Journal, which has a very sort of right-of-center tone to it. But again, there's a difference between – I mean I, one of the biggest – not a misconception. It's just an annoying idea that people say over and over again, which is the idea that reporters are supposed to be totally unopinionated and 100 percent objective. That is ridiculous on this face for the fact that human beings have beliefs, have things they love, have things they don't like. What is important is that a reporter is fair. You can have a set idea. You can have a set preference. You can dislike uh, Hillary Clinton, you can dislike Donald Trump. Or if you were me, before I moved to commentary and I could have interviews like this. But if you caught me eight months ago, we couldn't have this this interview because <laughs> I would keep my, keep my opinions more to myself. Uh, I had the good fortune during the election of not caring for Trump or Hillary Clinton. I wasn't fond of either. Again, like I lean more libertarian than anything and both uh, – neither one of those candidates really got close to it. But I tried my damnedest. I was actually assigned to uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, in, in case you were wondering. Uh, I tried my damnedest to be fair. I, like This is the argument she presented. This is the counter-argument Donald Trump presented. Kept my opinion to myself because – and uh, to my credit, like I was really proud of myself if I could brag for a little bit. That's okay. That yeah. I, got, I got constantly trolled and attacked by Clinton and Trump fans. You must have been doing something right. Because nobody could figure out who I liked. And so I'm like, good, you shouldn't know. But at the same time, it's ridiculous when we're like uh, – when we de- demand that reporters have no opinion or – like, you can have an opinion on a thing. Just be fair when you're reporting it. Just re- don't sneak in something. Don't present only one set of facts while hiding the other. Like you got to put everything in the story. It's important you, because the idea is like our job is just to import – on the reader, the facts. We're just trying to tell you what's going on. And if the reader walks away with an inaccurate picture of what's happening, then we failed. That's as simple as that. Yeah. So it sounds like if people are, cause there are a lot of people who routinely say, and I have friends tell me this, like, I don't know what to believe, man. I don't think I can trust the mainstream media. The problem of course then is, well, the mainstream media are the only media sources that actually like have full-time staff reporters who can like, do the difficult reporting. So what do you say to someone who is worried th- their whole epistemology is off because they feel like the bias is such that they don't know what to trust? Like, how do you sort of encourage or console them? Well, I, I always ask everyone, like one tool that was imported on me that I'm internally grateful for is just critical thinking skills. Like the idea of being able to sort through something. Like, I don't know what part of my formation handed this to me or if I was just merely blessed with the ability. I have a really good nose for sniffing out something that smells like BS. Uh, in fact, in a couple of newsrooms I've worked with, I somehow – I never asked for it. I just generally – it gravitates towards me. I become the person that editors send stories to double check because they're like, we're not sure if this is true or not. We need you to debunk it or fact check it and I've gotten quite good at it. But this is the same thing I tell readers. You know, If you hear something or read something and – you know. 
you're not sure what to believe, guarantee you can find something on that same topic somewhere else. Like just use your – does this smell bad? Like it, like an easy rule of thumb I use is if you read something and it sounds like a scene out of a television show or a movie, 90 percent <laughs> chance it's it's not true. But yeah. it's just – I, you can't – this is such, such the problem though with the whole fake news thing where people just scream fake news as a rallying cry against media or against Donald Trump or against whatever. And this is the problem that I keep trying to argue about like why reporters need to be more careful with Trump is that the less people believe us, the more people at the top, people in the White House can get away with stuff because who are you going to believe? Nobody believes anyone anymore. So we have to be more careful and when it comes to the, the idea of you know, the mainstream media, which is – a term I, I hate in the first place. I actually I, I really like it when I hear Fox talk about the mainstream media because it was like you are the mainstream yeah, media. You're one of, of the course. biggest channels and networks out there. When people don't trust it, I mean, it's just you know not to be cliche, but no, think for yourself. What is, if this is a person on the record with their name? They said this. Oh, this story is most likely true. I, I've had people dismiss stories outright 100 percent, despite all the evidence, simply because they don't like. That newsroom, and that's really hard to counter. I, I, other than to say, well, please open your mind a little bit more. I'm not really sure how to approach that. Well, I wonder if, if kind of what we were talking about earlier might help a bit of just di- distinguishing between an editorial slant, like coming from a point of view, and the fabrication of information. Those are those are different things. Right, right. That is something I have tried to stress a lot. Anytime I write about fake news, I try to say there is a huge difference. Between what we say when we say fake news and just simply sloppy or maybe even biased reporting. When we say yeah. fake news, as people say, that there is a, a, an entire cottage industry of information that is – information is not the right word um, – of stuff that is made up out of thin air for the sole purpose of profit and uh, misdirection. That is actual fake news. The New York Times is like the New York Times screwed up a report they did recently on Rick Perry uh, when he came into the Energy Department. Uh, that's not fake news. That's just bad reporting. Huge difference between that and fake news. Fake news is cannot be defended and should not be defended. It needs to be stomped out with extreme prejudice. So, that, like, but that's part of the problem with the fake news thing is that the term has been co-opted by people who hate the New York Times to just kind of scream it over and over again to kind of constantly undermine and discredit these sort of uh, legacy media groups because it, it's now – it's a political term at this point is the New York Times is reporting something unflattering on Donald Trump. So Donald Trump just goes, hey, fake news. And now you've undermined the credibility of the report. You have people doubting whether it's true. It's In short, it's a huge mess. But the best thing the New York Times can do is they, for their part, need to be more careful. Like again, that Rick Perry story I th- believe was very poorly reported. The idea, uh, just for background, they reported that basically he came to the energy department and had no idea that it actually oversees our nuclear armament. That's not true. There's several quotes of him on the record. He's he's quite aware, especially as the governor of Texas, where half of our nukes are stashed and maintained. He was well aware of what was happening when he came to that department. That's sloppy. That can't happen because that actually feeds people who are like, New York Times is fake news. Well, what makes you say that? Look at this report they got wrong. My gosh, you're right. This is wrong. This is fake news, blah, blah, blah. And that's it kind of snowballs from there, which to repeat myself, I mean, it just makes our job of shining a light on the White House even harder. So before I ask you my final question that I that I ask every guest, I want to ask one more uh, to you as a sort of a media expert. When The Daily Show started really picking up steam and kind of blowing up, you know, there was this feeling on the left and I was a fairly avid watcher. Uh, I was, was the right demographic, certainly. 
that time of like, finally, Jon Stewart is like taking it to ridiculous conservative media. And even though this is a comedy show, like, and even though I know he's like liberal, he's speaking the truth. I think that was like, there was a pretty unalloyed optimism about what that might do for America. And I'm kind of thinking that we have good reason to question that. Uh, if Trevor Noah and Samantha B and John Oliver, if that legacy of like liberal satire media actually did more to make the right feel disenfranchised and condemned and judged. What do you think about that? Well, I'm going to stake out my, I've been very loud in my opinion on this one. I, I think John Stewart was pretty funny in the beginning, but somewhere along the line, uh, I would say shortly after we invaded Iraq, uh, he became toxic. Hmm. I believe that entire brand of late night humor became toxic because it became focused solely around politics and the idea of um, party politics became a lot of red versus blue, which is fine. You can do that. But this is one thing I've been so frustrated about in the age of Trump. There's been a lot of chest beating in newsrooms about how how important media is and how important the fourth estate is. And people must listen to us because we are the center for truth. And, And it's frustrating for me because I have spent the last 15 how many years watching major newsrooms lionize, idolize, and, and, and sort of uh, build John Stewart up to this level of sort of a rock star hero. The problem with that is that it became clear long ago when people were saying it openly, and polling will show you this, people gravitated towards The Daily Show for their news. They were actually going to John Stewart for news, and nobody cared. Nobody thought that was a bad idea, except for a very small few, who, like myself, who were saying, actually, th- this probably isn't the best thing if people are going to a Comedy Central show to get their news. And now here we are in 2017, and people are asking, how in the world can anyone watch Alex Jones and call that news? Well, you guys built John Stewart into this sort of folk hero status, and all he did was like make fart jokes about George W. Bush. I, I, some of them were pretty good jokes, but like you get my drift. Is that yeah? People people actually started treating him, and actually you'll see it today still. People treat John Oliver as if he is an actual news source. You will see news stories on guys who make fun of news for a living, and they are treated as almost, uh, these trusted sources who can explain this thing to you. Now they're comedians first and foremost, and you know who can who you should probably be going. You should probably be going to Scott Pele and sixty minutes to figure out the story, not John Oliver and Samantha B. So I I have said for years that I think that the trend towards these people has been toxic because it became pretty I would say a long time ago people went to Stewart for laughs but after that they started going to him for something else which was confirmation bias which is what people go to John Stewart for which is what people go to Samantha B for it's great to hear someone tear down a guy you hate especially if there's a punchline attached to it yeah it's but the problem is pure pleasure yeah. Right. And so people start depending on that. And then here we are in 2017 and you see the most ridiculous people come out of the woodwork and are being cited and treated as news sources. Well, I, not to say I told you so, but what did you expect when you build up someone like John Stewart into the, the Bob Dylan of his generation? What were you expecting? He's not a truth teller. He's a comedian. He's an entertainer. And just before I follow this up, like the best example – of this sort of weird hero worship for these late night comedian guys I saw was when Jon Stewart announced his retirement. And I want to say Ruth Marcus. Don't quote me on that. She, it was a Washington Post columnist. I believe it was Ruth Marcus. She tweeted at the time, for you kids, to put this in perspective, 
this is the equivalent of the Beatles breaking up. I was like, no, John Stewart retiring <laughs> is not the Beatles breaking up. Why would? Why did we build these clowns? And not to say, I'm not saying clown is like to be mean. Like they literally are clowns. They are court jesters. That's literally what they do. And we built them up to basically like America's anchorman is now John Stewart and John Oliver and Stephen Colbert. It's, that was a bad idea from the get go, and I kind of think it contributed to the, some of the problems we have today. Yeah, that's it's a it's a point made by like Ben Shapiro and others on the right that you can't and I think it's a good point. You can't blame we elected a celebrity like a television reality star as president and you can't simply blame the right for that. That is something that has been going on. It, maybe it started with Reagan, maybe it started with the Kennedys. I mean, I, who knows? Like it it goes back to really probably the first televised debate changed everything. I mean, that, that is the, that's the perspective of, um, Neil Postman in amusing ourselves to death, which he wrote in 1985 and Barack Obama was a celebrity. I mean, he really was a celebrity president in, in a certain sense. He also, he was was treated like one, but he was an honest to God, you know, uh, lawmaker. Yes. But he was also an actual person with governing experience. It just, just to say like, you know, I'm worried that we have a reality television star as our president but I think it's probably better to put my time into buttressing against the ill effects of that rather than pointing fingers. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying all social ills and everything can oh, be no. no all John, not, Stewart, all yeah. John Stewart's fault. But I wanted to point out that I think while we're trying to figure out and do a postmortem on how did 2016 happen, I don't think we'd be wrong to say, well, maybe we shouldn't have turned late night comedians into our newsmen. Maybe that was a bad idea. Yeah, no, I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I was uh, I was sort of speaking to people on on the left who want to kind of wrap it all into a, a Trump thing. So uh, I know you got to go, but this is my last question I ask everybody, and it's a it's a two two pronger. It's basically what is your biggest criticism of the left? And your biggest criticism of the right or like what is something that they're getting wrong on each side? And for you, since you report on media, let's make it about media. So what is your biggest criticism of left-leaning media these days? The willingness to print whatever is said about Trump concerning the Russians. The Russian thing is obviously serious enough for Congress to look into it. But I have seen some of the just the zaniest stuff and absolute kooks. Like we're talking real Looney Tune material people are being cited, quoted, and added in honest-to-God reports from like the Washington Post and New York Times. Not fringe news outlets, but they're building up. And I I won't mention names because I'm not going to get too into it, but you can probably guess like who I'm talking about. There are some people who have r- risen to prominence on social media because they just launched into the most bizarre – I mean it's like Kellyanne Conway stuff like you know microwaves are spying on you. It's just like, oh, OK. All right. And then like somehow this person ends up in the New York Times writing an op-ed. You're like, OK, that was a bad idea. Why are you giving this person a platform? They're clearly maybe not all together. And you think that's just because it, it gets clicks. It gets ad revenue. It gets clicks. But it also – I guess this, we could say this place to some of the editorial tone. People are genuinely interested not just in the New York Times' newsroom but their readership about what the hell is this whole Russia thing about. And so you know, there's, there's, a, there's a market demand and they're going to answer it and whether or not they, they lean on – someone who's absolute crazy pants for the answer is, is where I think the problem starts. Yeah. Uh, and criticism for the, 
for right-leaning media, did you want? Yeah, what's your biggest criticism of the right-leaning media? A willingness to defend anything Donald Trump does. I mean, I swear, the man bit off a bat's head today. They would talk about how he was presidential. And you know what? He fights. He bit off that. Barack Obama wouldn't have bitten that, hat, that head <laughs> off. And the, the other big one, on a more serious note, it's too quoque is super annoying and starting to really get under my nerves is basically what aboutism. If there's something Trump does or says or something his someone his administration does that I'll criticize and say, I don't know about this, that doesn't seem like a thing that a person in the White House should do. The immediate response from so much on the right is, Well, Barack Obama did it. I'm like if that's the problem, why are you praising that in the guy you just elected? I thought you didn't like Barack Obama. Well, he did it. I, that's not an argument in favor of Trump. That's an argument against Trump. Yeah, and, and that actually – that bleeds a little bit into uh, the anti-anti-Trump crowd as I think Andrew Sullivan or David Frum have, have kind of framed it. I think it's Sullivan of like – and it's not everybody on the right and it's not every article, but you definitely find these articles – a lot of times I see them on National Review because I try to read National Review because of how – reasonable it often is but you see these articles that's like here's how this person on the left is freaking out about trump and that's the article is just making fun of someone being hysterical about trump and the article never even mentions the thing trump did and whether or not it was good or or bad they steer clear right yeah there's been a bit of that i mean i have to admit i've done it before um and and i've mentioned the thing that trump did and i'll mention like actually this isn't that that oh actually here's a, an example from now is this um, missile strike in Syria. Actually, the fact that we told the Russians that actually isn't scandalous. We have the deconfliction memo in place, which was agreed to in 2015, which is basically an agreement between Russia and the U.S. saying, "Hey, we both are kind of on opposite ends of the Syrian civil war. Let's have open communication. So if you do anything and I do anything, we'll let the other one know. That way, we avoid killing each other." Which, yeah, actually, I th- I think that's pretty wise, I, and I approve of that. <laughs> there was this. So I wrote about there was this sort of like immediate freak out in some media circles about we told the Russians, we told the Russians, why would we tell the Russians? I'm like, guys, chill. There was an agreement in place since 2015. It's it's actually pretty wise. This way, we don't kill war with Russia and yeah. vice versa. That's actually a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's it's not exactly what I'm referring to. Is more these like, look at how crazy and hysterical these people are. Okay, well, it it's it's a way of it's like a a cheap cheerleading. Anyway, Beckett, I know you got to go. Um, if people want to be in touch with you, follow you online or whatever, where should they be looking? You can find my stuff anytime at WashingtonExaminer.com, or you can follow at Beckett Adams, Beckett with one T, B-E-C-K-E-T-A-D-A-M-S. And if you want to even give me a call, my office number is attached to my Twitter bio. <laughs> nice. All right. Any hot tips, you call Beckett. Well, thanks so much for your time, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Next week, we do get a religious episode. Theologian and pastor Dr. Greg Boyd of Woodland Hills Church. He's got like 50 books or something like that. He's super prolific, really brilliant guy, and just a really unique perspective. Uh, The question we're asking there is, what would it mean for America to be a Christian nation? And what is a Christian called to politically? If you don't care about faith Uh, You can probably skip next week's episode. I don't think it would be very interesting for you, but if you do, I hope you'll listen to it. 
Greg holds a pretty radical and controversial stance on this, and I'll just leave you with that as a cliffhanger rather than giving it away. And then finally, you know, we've got this Patreon campaign that's been going. It's really helpful. It's basically covering the costs of this show, uh, almost all of them. If you want to support the show, you get things like uncut interviews and bonus content. I was just on a conservative talk radio show that went out this week to patrons only. It starts at only $3 a month. You can go to patreon.com slash depolarize or depolarizepodcast.com and click the become a patron button. See you guys next week.